Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A New Zealand-born man who moved to Australia in the 1970s and started a sect, telling his eventual nine wives and 60-plus children that he was Jesus Christ, was put behind bars for seven years in Victoria in 2000. In spite of the fairly sensational nature of his lifestyle and crimes, his name is not well known here, but his polygamous group gained the most media attention when a recent Bachelor Australia contestant was outed by the press for her childhood involvement. Today we're talking about a cult that didn't officially have a name, but was unofficially referred to as the Seaside Sect. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes references to child sexual assault and domestic violence. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Ian Francis Lowe was born on the 17th of October 1928 in Auckland, New Zealand. According to journalist Naomi Larkin in the New Zealand Herald, he was raised by his grandparents on his mother's side. It's not clear what happened to his parents, but I read some unverifiable details on message boards about Ian being born illegitimately into a religious family, which may explain the situation. Initially, he looked to follow in his grandfather's footsteps as a carpenter, but he would go on to become an apprentice baker. Then in 1953, he tried out working in the police force. Around the same time, he married his first wife in the Mormon church where media reports claim that he learned about polygamy. This could well be conjecture, since the modern Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints excommunicates members found to be practising plural marriage, though there's a history of it in the Church, 
and a lot of people still use the term Mormon to refer to the various fundamentalist LDS-related polygamous sects often found in Utah. Ian doesn't seem to have been well-suited to the police force, and lasted in it less than a year. His marriage lasted longer, but had also fallen apart by 1969, when he decided to start afresh and move to Sydney, Australia. Starting over in more than just country of residence, Ian decided to change his name in Sydney too, finally settling on Alistar, spelt A-L-I-S-T-A-H, Leishkachav. It's unclear how Alistar found his devotees, but what's apparent is that they were mostly young women, some in their teens. A few of the cults we've covered on this podcast formed in the 1970s, and it was a period where lots of people were seeking alternate lifestyles and communal living. It seems that Alistair's brand of religion took on aspects of the Mormonism he'd come to know in New Zealand, as well as some Jewish and Muslim beliefs, and he had a particular interest in the faith of native Hawaiians as well. That religion is polytheistic and animistic, with beliefs about spirits being found in animals, plants, the sea and the sky. So these are not necessarily belief systems that would strike one as particularly compatible, especially as Alistair also seems to have claimed himself to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Alistair and his followers moved on to Goulburn, a regional city in New South Wales between Sydney and Australia's capital, Canberra. And from the devotees, a total of nine women would become his so-called wives, though not legally, as multiple marriages aren't permitted under Australian law. Each of the wives was decades younger than Alistair. Over the next few years, the group appears to have moved around Australia a bit, and then in 1983, settled in Bells Beach, Victoria. The Great Ocean Road is a 243-kilometre, or 151-mile, stretch of southeastern Australia's surf coast. It's one of the country's most beautiful drives, and a major tourist attraction that includes sites like the Twelve Apostles Rock Formations, majestically jutting out of the sea by Port Campbell National Park. Bells Beach is a famous surf beach off the Great Ocean Road, 100 kilometres, or 62 miles, south of Melbourne, by the town of Torquay. The Rip Curl Pro World Tour Surfing Competition takes place at Bells Beach each year, with ACDC's Hell's Bells starting each day of the contest. It's in Bells Beach that Alistair and his followers began to be referred to by others as the Seaside Sect. I'm going to use that name as well, but keep in mind that it's not something they used themselves. One of the wives would later tell a current affair, quote, You can't name what we are because we're not an organised religion. The growing group moved into a two-storey house, as between the many wives there were now also many offspring. Some young families had joined the commune, and not all of the children were Alistar's, but many counted him as their biological father. He gave some of the children, as well as some of the wives, Hawaiian names. There were up to 15 bunk beds in a room to fit all of the children. There were also sheds outside the house. One of his wives later told the CBS program Hard Copy that, quote, 
one unbreakable rule in the household was loyalty to Alistar, and he came to be known amongst his followers as the Controller. He kept food locked up in these sheds, limiting access as he saw fit. A few different articles that I came across refer to the Australian newspaper reporting that Alistar believed a UFO would come and take them all away in 1988, but unfortunately I couldn't source the original article. With the communal setup, all of the adults parented all of the children, who didn't necessarily know who their biological mother was. The women were sharing in homeschooling the children up until 1991, when they decided to enrol them in local schools. Perhaps it was all getting a bit unwieldy at home, or perhaps there was something else going on at home that prompted this decision. En masse, 29 children were enrolled in Torquay Primary School, and Ken McCallum, who'd been the school principal at the time, told the New Zealand Herald that although the kids seemed a little reserved and pale-skinned, like they'd spent a lot of time indoors, quote, We certainly had no inkling that anything was wrong, because the mums were so caring of them. He also recalled Alistair coming to a parent-teacher meeting once in flowing robes. The older children were enrolled in the local Oberon High School. Byron Bay is a coastal town in northern New South Wales that is known for being very open to all kinds of alternative lifestyles. These days there are more boutiques there than there used to be, but traditionally it's been embraced by the types of people who might happily call themselves hippies. If you're looking to find a commune to set yourself up in, the areas surrounding Byron wouldn't be a bad place to start, and it's easy to see why Alistair moved his group just north of here to another seaside area. Fun fact, you can actually stay in the property that they lived in for $1,500 Australian or over $1,000 US per night. The stay's accommodation listing says that it can sleep up to 14 guests in two compounds. And the property featured on Channel 7 reality program Instant Hotel, where couple Sam and James's mention of its history piqued the interest of Let's Talk About Sects listener Ian Eglinton in Luxembourg, who asked if I might look into it for the podcast. In 1992, the Channel 9 program A Current Affair was granted access to film a story about the family, just after they had made the huge move in the bus they owned to live in Byron Bay. Watching this program, Alistair could not be said to be an attractive man by most traditional interpretations. He's a big guy with bad teeth, long greasy ginger curls and a moustache. But he comes across as unassuming, friendly and even self-deprecating. The women all seem very happy and considered in explaining their lifestyle choices. The interviewer seems perplexed mostly about how they could be attracted to a guy that looks like Alistair, and hung up on questions of how sexual relations worked between them all. I'm not a fan of judging a non-traditional relationship structure based on a lack of monogamy alone. I've done a fair amount of research into polyamorous approaches to life partnerships, and while of course consent is the most important part... To my mind, ethics and honesty need to be key. So when the practice of non-monogamy is only allowed for one party, as it is in polygyny or polyandry situations, for example, I'd generally have some questions about the ethics and whether there's a power imbalance at play. For Alistair and his wives, it seemed that they all shared the one bedroom, but there was a rotating roster of who would be sharing Alistair's bed, 
which might be more than one woman at a time. By the time of the current affair segment, there were 63 children in the household, which was bringing in almost a quarter of a million dollars in welfare payments. As a couple of the women explained to the Channel 9 journalist, that's how the system worked. Per person, they were getting no more than they were entitled to, and since the law only recognised one of Alistair's wives, the other eight couldn't be seen as de facto under their entitlements, whatever their practical arrangement. In the months following their fairly favourable coverage on A Current Affair, as well as a write-up in Woman's Day, the darker side of life in this seemingly happy, if unusual, family reared its ugly head. By late 1992, Alistair had been banished from his own sect. The nine former wives and children stayed on in the big house together, and they told a current affair that Alistair had gone too far when he had become physically violent with a couple of the wives. One woman, Michelle, said, quote, Once the ego sets in, they think that they can do anything. Another said, quote, it all sort of blew up into this big argument and we just decided unanimously to tell him that he had to leave. Then in 1993, one of the children told a school friend about her abuse at the hands of Alistair. The police began investigating claims of sexual and physical abuse that Alistair had perpetrated during the Bells Beach years, between 1987 and 1991, against four different girls aged between 7 and 11 at the time. One of the girls was Alistair's biological daughter, and police believed that this was a case of mistaken identity, that he hadn't realised that she was his child. The officers came to understand that the wives hadn't known about the sexual abuse. Whilst the investigations were going on, three of the women left the Byron Bay compound with their children to start new lives, while six remained. It took many years, as these things often do, but in 1998, Alistair was charged with child sex offences, and finally, in 2000, the case came to trial. One of the victims, who was now 18, told the court that she was molested by Alistair every other day between the ages of seven and nine hundreds of times over the three-year period until she left the group with her father, and Alistair said she'd be punished by his God if she didn't keep this a secret. She also said that Alistair was physically abusive towards his children, slapping and punching them, had Hawaiian music piped through the Bells Beach house, liked to preach to them from the Old Testament, and that she and the others were absolutely terrified of him. Another of the victims said that when she was eight, Alistair would kiss her and tell her that she would one day become his wife. At a pre-sentencing hearing on the 3rd of August 2000, Alistair's lawyer told the court that his client was now in contact with only two of the 63 children, and was a lonely old man without any assets. Of the 40 charges against him, on the 11th of August 2000, 
Alistair Leishkachav was found guilty of 20 child sex offences and one charge of reckless injury. The reckless injury charge related to an incident where he threw a plank of wood at a child's head. The then 71-year-old was sentenced to seven years and six months in jail, with a minimum term of five years. Judge Mervyn Kim said that although his role as a spiritual leader was part of how he was able to carry out the abhorrent criminal acts, Alistair was being sentenced for his crimes and not his lifestyle. Then in 2003, Alistair was brought to New South Wales to face further charges of indecent assault against two girls in 1973 and 1974, and the attempted rape of a 14-year-old girl in Byron Bay in 1992. Whilst I couldn't find a record of the New South Wales trial or any subsequent verdict and sentencing, I did find that Alistair was released from jail in 2008, which suggests he did have to serve out more than his minimum five-year term on the original charges. Although a number of media outlets reported that Alistair Laishkachev died in prison in 2012, as far as I can work out, that is not the case. It seems that he was deported back to New Zealand, in fact, and went back to answering to his old name of Ian Lowe. What I could find was a death notice published in the New Zealand Herald on the 14th of April 2012. It said, quote, Lowe, Ian Francis, passed away April 6, 2012 at his home, aged 83, loved father of all his children. In a way, I'd like to be able to end this episode here. This is still going to be a shorter episode than usual, due to the lack of information I was able to source about this cult. But in August 2016, another chapter was added to the story by the Australian media. Woman's Day magazine and television program A Current Affair, which were the two media outlets that had given Alistair Laishkachev the fairly light coverage that didn't ask many difficult questions back in 1992, right before the child abuse allegations hit, decided to out a contestant on that season of The Bachelor Australia for having been born into the cult. For me, the resulting articles and segments make for really uncomfortable reading and viewing. Kira Maguire was Alistair's biological daughter, and her mother Michelle and Aunt Gail were two of his wives. Michelle was one of the women who left the Byron Bay compound in 1993 with her kids, including Kira, who was just five at the time. These channels positioned Kira as having some kind of hidden past, full of dark secrets that she kept from the producers of The Bachelor when they cast her. I'd prefer not to even be mentioning it here, to be honest, because it's not something that Kira herself chose to speak openly about. But she was forced into a situation of having to make a public statement as a result of this kind of reporting. And since articles about Kira are what will mostly come up if you Google Alistair Laishkachev now, I think it's worth understanding this aspect. Initially, in the wake of the stories, Kira released a statement to the Australian media. She said, quote, 
My mother removed my family from that environment when I was five years old, over 25 years ago. I was brought up by my mother and grandmother in Brisbane in a loving, caring and compassionate household. I had a wonderful childhood and I am extremely grateful to both my mother and grandmother for the upbringing which they provided me and my siblings. Although I have since met and reunited with my family, I have never had a relationship with Alistair Laishkachev. Alistair Laishkachev is not relevant to who I am, nor does he define me. End quote. With the media continuing to hound her, and more stories proliferating across all kinds of channels now, Kira decided to take back the reins and go on Channel 7 television show The Project to speak about her experiences directly. She told interviewer Carrie Bickmore about the footage on A Current Affair, quote, My mum would be devastated that they're showing this again. I'm obviously very protective of my family. When I saw my mum on TV, it was very confronting. And about the Woman's Day article, Kira said, quote, I just couldn't believe that they actually wrote a story without even coming to me and asking me if it was okay. Obviously now I know they'll write whatever they want. They don't care who they hurt or what they reveal about something that someone doesn't necessarily want to show. Kira also said of the reasons that she was speaking publicly now, quote, I feel like I have a responsibility now to let people know that you cannot be defined by anything that is out of your control, and don't ever let your circumstances judge you. About how her experiences in the cult affected her, she didn't have a lot to say since she'd left so young, but she said that she didn't know who her mother was until she was five, and didn't celebrate a birthday until she was seven. Kira's half-brother, Shem Baker, told A Current Affair that, quote, Some of us have actually been able to move on with our lives, but some of us have struggled a little bit harder than others. A lot of us aren't proud that he was our father. We all just want to move on with our lives. It's really important to remember how these experiences have ongoing impacts on the lives of the victims. Because Kira Maguire's childhood narrative was taken out of her hands by the Australian media, I think it's fitting that we should end on some words from her that I think many people in similar situations can take to heart. Quote, It really upsets me to think that other people would have to go through what I went through, and to think that they had to hide and they should be ashamed of it. support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, merchandise, or a one-off donation. Further details at ltaspod.com. As well as perks like buttons, tote bags, stickers, and personal recordings, our Patreon supporters regularly get early access to episodes of the show. Please consider mentioning this podcast to a friend if you feel like they might appreciate it. If you have been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support 
if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you are concerned about a potential sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse situation, visit www.1800respect.com.au if you're in Australia or www.rain.org if you're in the United States for helplines and other resources. Let's Talk About Sex is researched and presented by Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. This was a tricky sect to research, and I was surprised by the lack of information available. But as usual, my information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Thanks for listening, and hope you'll join me again next month. Hi, I'm Roseanne, host of the California Dreaming Podcast, a show that delves into the darker side of the not-so-golden state. Together, we will visit some of the most unhinged and chilling crimes that ever shook California and beyond. Join me as I take you on a journey into a new story each week with a different backdrop from all around California, from the bright lights and glamour of Hollywood to the picturesque and tranquil wine country. No crime, no town, nobody is off limits. Listen to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of the podcast Southern Fraud True Crime. Each week, I take a look at a different Southern crime. And like any good gossip, I'm interested in anyone or anything. I cover contemporary and historical cases, and I love listener suggestions. Come join me as I explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. I'm a one-woman show in a narrative format, kind of like sitting by the fire and listening to a story. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and just about any podcast platform. Just search for Southern Fried True Crime. Until then, y'all take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.